Hello, welcome to Workplace Wake Up. I'm Jen Shaw. Every week, I spend about 15 minutes covering legal developments, introducing you to interesting guests, and providing some entertainment to start your workday. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe we're talking about meal periods again, but we are. I am so grateful to have my colleague Megan Donahue with me. Megan, good morning. Good morning. Megan is another one of our wage hour gurus. Some of you may have worked with her on wage hour audits that the firm does. And when Megan first joined our firm, she was focused on investigations, right, Megan, and doing some training. How did you even get into this wage hour side of our practice? Yeah, well, in the past, I had done some wage and hour work when I was in-house um, in my role as an HR professional. So, um, you know, I had some background there. And when Elena said she needed help doing some of these wage and hour audits because our clients were really needing more and more of the audits, I was happy to throw my hat in the ring. And um, our audits are, are really very robust processes. We go in, we talk to HR professionals and the payroll professionals and really dig into what their policies and procedures are. We look at a ton of documents for them, things like timesheets, wage statements, but also the policies and the procedures that they have in place and what other documents do they have to actually administer the processes that they, they have in place. And then we talk to the next layer down and we talk to some managers and find out, okay, managers, how, are, how is this working for you? And we find out um, if they're actually doing what the payroll professionals and the HR professionals think they're doing and whether they're actually administering payroll the way they're supposed to be. And from there, we can identify gaps and we put together a, a pretty robust report of what they could be doing better. Uh, we give them best practices and recommendations for how to improve their processes. So I think it's really beneficial for our clients and it's been really fun to learn all the nuance of California wage and hour law, which is quite uh, extensive. It definitely is, Megan. Is there an area where folks really struggle? And I think you're gonna say meal periods because <laughs> Ever since I've been doing this since 1994, that is what people struggle with. There's this idea of, okay, I don't want to take a meal period or can't I take a meal period when I want? What is going on in the meal period universe? Is there something new for us to talk about? Yeah, meal periods and rest period compliance is definitely at the top of the list when we do these wage and hour audits. I mean, employers want to do the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing, but they sometimes fall short. And even the ones that are doing it well, they report that it's really difficult to manage. And so, you know, there's not necessarily something new, but it's just an ongoing struggle. And it's a conversation we have with almost every single client that we are doing these wage and hour audits for. So what are the basic meal period rules? Like for our listeners, you know, I think a lot of times we find in our practice that even the most experienced human resources professionals or leaders or, uh, uh, you know, attorneys who practice workplace law, they sometimes forget the basic rules about meal periods, right? And we just had a court decision that I think was pretty helpful in laying them out for us. What should folks know about meal periods? And we're talking about California employers. Just to make sure all of you know, California is pretty unique in this area in terms of what is required for your non-exempt employees, those employees who are working on an hourly basis. And obviously, if we screw this up, Megan, we have liability under PAGA, right? The Private Attorney General's Act. 
um, which here in California has been a huge sort of um, nightmare. I don't know what other word to use for employers who end up having to mediate these cases and write huge checks, right? So what should they be doing on meal periods? Yeah, yeah. So let's just kind of give a primer, uh, the basics on meal periods. You know, employers must provide a 30-minute meal period before the end of the employee's fifth hour of work. When an employee is not going to work more than six hours, the meal period can be voluntarily waived. But as soon as they go over that six-hour mark, you're on the hook for making sure that they had had their, their meal period already taken, right? So that can be tricky to manage. Employers must provide a second meal period of no fewer than 30 minutes when an employee works more than 10 hours. And that meal period has to be provided before the end of the 10th hour of work. The employee can also voluntarily waive that meal period, but only if they didn't waive their first meal period. And then these meal periods that I'm talking about have to be uninterrupted and they have to be completely, the employee has to be completely removed from duty during that time. Anytime that an employee doesn't receive a compliant meal period, they are entitled to one hour of meal period premium pay. And Jen, remember that has to be paid at the regular rate of pay. And that is that calculation that includes all the remuneration for employment divided by the number of hours worked. Um, so it's not the base rate that we're paying it at. We're paying it at this calculated regular rate of pay. Um, the, so they can get up to one meal period premium per day for non-compliant meal periods, but also one meal uh, one rest period premium for any non-compliant rest period as well. So obviously there's a lot more to it than, than that, but those are the basics that employers need to know and need to comply with. Well, and one of the things I think employers need to remember too is the rules you just gave are sort of the general rules. Mm -hmm. For example, if somebody works in a hospital and they're covered under wage order five, there are different rules for folks who have direct patient contact, right? Or someone works in a, in a construction um, location or construction site, there may be different rules. One of the things that always trips people up, Megan, is when you say the meal period must um, begin before the fifth hour of work. So that means they cannot work more than four hours and 59 minutes without starting that meal period, right? It doesn't have to be over, but it has to begin. So a lot of people will say, oh, okay, well, my employee comes in at eight, so they can start their meal period at one o'clock. No, they have to start their meal period at 1259. And of course, most of us have electronic timekeeping these days. So those payroll records are going to show that. So Megan, one of the things that I want to highlight for our listeners is you use the word provide when we talk about these meal periods. And that literally means you have to make it available. Now, if your employee chooses not to take it, they're not entitled to one of those premium hours that you just mentioned, but you've got to discipline them. Because one of the things the courts have said is if you are constantly having folks who have chosen not to take their meal period, you are not enforcing that rule. And the rule is for the employee's health and safety, right? So one of the things that, that I think a lot of employers get confused about is, well, look, if the employee doesn't want to take the meal period, they don't have to take the meal period. They don't want to take a rest period, don't make them. Well, it's not that easy. It's just like overtime. Somebody can't say to you, oh, that's okay, Jen. You don't have to pay me overtime. I love working with you. I don't mind working extra at home, which I've had employees say. No, you've got to record all your time. It doesn't work that way. So that provide term is interesting. Now, let's talk, Megan, about this new court decision. Yeah. This is the case 
that I think um, you brought to my attention that I think our listeners will really find interesting. Yeah, I agree. So in January, I came across uh, Rivera v. Ryder Integrated Logistics, Inc. Now, Jen, this case is unpublished. So what that means is that it can be informative about how the courts might look at issues like this, but it's not going to be binding on the courts. But still, I think that there's some really good takeaways and best practices for employers uh, that came straight from this case. So in this particular case, the plaintiff raised a variety of claims, uh, but with regard to meal periods, the plaintiff claimed that he was required to, to take short meal periods on occasions and that his meal periods were interrupted. Um, he didn't receive meal period premiums as required by law when that happened. Now, the short meal periods that he gave as the example were one and two minutes short um, on two consecutive days. So they weren't significant, um, but they were short. And when they asked him um, whether the employer required him to return from work, he acknowledged that no, he was not required to come back early from those, those two meal periods. Um, with regard to the interruptions, plaintiff stated that on one occasion, he was asked to return to work during his meal period. But in that instance, Ryder paid him for the time that he spent working, and they later provided him with the full and uninterrupted meal period after completing the task. So again, he's kind of pointing back to Ryder having a very good process in place, a culture of you need to be taking these meal periods and making sure that he's getting what he's entitled to. So not great facts on the plaintiff's side, but we had really good facts on the rider side. In fact, the court described um, riders' procedures as having robust procedures in place for compliance. So um, I think I, I, it's important for us to share these robust procedures because these are those takeaways, right? So the court found that first off, rider had very specific policies in their handbooks that outlined their expectation. So there was a written policy requiring employees to record all hours worked. There's a written policy regarding the payment of all wages, including those overtime wages, a written policy about meal period, a written policy about rest breaks. So in addition to having all these policies right there in writing, they also train their employees and managers on those meal and rest period policies. And of course, the most important part was that they were able to provide documentation that showed that the plaintiff received the handbook and that, they, that he had actually received that training during his employment. Megan, those are such good pointers for employers, right? Because when you think about how many of our clients tell us, oh, Jen, it's just a handbook. I can just print it off the internet. It doesn't have to be anything specific. Or I've had my handbook since 1985. I don't need to update it. These policies and procedures are really important. Now, obviously, as you find in your audits, Megan, what's written in paper also has to be carried out in reality. So it's not just enough to have a policy, right? You've also got to enforce it. Absolutely. And I think Ryder had that in their favor too, right? So the, they had safeguards in place to make sure that they had accurate records for the employee's time and that they remedied issues when those issues came up. So they had employees signing weekly acknowledgments that their time punches were accurate and that the employee received their breaks. Um, they were also able to show that the particular plaintiff at issue here acknowledged 59 out of 68 weeks that he had accurately recorded his time and received breaks, and he never reported to management that he didn't receive a meal period. 
They also had a meal period and rest break exception form, which stated that the purpose of the form was to capture situations in which an employee contends he or she was unable to take timely, uninterrupted meal periods or rest breaks, according to Ryder's policy. And they showed that plaintiff knew that this form existed and that he had um, knew how, how to submit them because he had done so on at least 15 occasions during his employment. They were also able to show that the payroll manager investigated, corrected, and documented issues with the time records, including missed meal periods. So for instance, if an employee missed a meal period, they asked the employee, you know, what happened? Uh, why could you not take your break? What prevented you? What can we do to make sure that you get that break? That's just reiterating that culture of wanting to, to get the employee to take their meal period and making sure that they know that they are being provided the opportunity to do so. And then finally, it showed that between June 2020 and November 2021, it had paid more than 180 meal and rest period premiums to employees at the same facility where the plaintiff worked. And so some of you might be thinking, well, that just shows that they weren't providing compliant meal periods, right? Like that's not a good thing. But actually, it's the opposite. I mean, it shows that they had an attention to getting the employee what they were entitled to and, and making sure that they were doing the right thing by the employee. Well, and one of my favorite parts about this case, Megan, is where the plaintiff testified in his deposition. Oh, my gosh, everyone was so strict about meal periods. All I ever heard was how I couldn't work during my meal period. And I think he obviously didn't realize how much that supported Ryder's position, right? Um, so that was one of my just favorite parts of the whole decision. The other thing that's important, I think, for our listeners to understand is that premium pay that you mentioned, that one hour for a non-compliant meal period, that only is applicable when the employer precludes the employee from taking the compliant meal period. So when you mentioned that on one occasion, the, the plaintiff's meal period was cut short, they went ahead and paid him for that time, and then they gave him a fully compliant meal period, meaning it was on time, it was of the appropriate duration, it was uninterrupted later on so they actually did what they needed to do during that same shift to remedy the problem so this employer really did it right now one thing to note that i want to make sure you all get the fact that the meal periods were one or two minutes short still makes them non-compliant because remember under california law there's no recognition of this idea of de minimis time now with federal law the fair labor standards act there is a recognition of that, but not in California. So it was still a non-compliant meal period. But for all the reasons that you mentioned, Megan, the employer ended up coming out ahead here, right? Because of all the work they did to make sure their policies and their procedures were in place. Exactly. Now, one of the other things about meal periods that came from this case was that the plaintiff claimed that he had signed a second meal period waiver and that it was invalid because he had to revoke it in writing and no one ever gave him a form to be able to revoke his uh, waiver. But Ryder showed that on the form itself, it actually said that revoking it in writing was the preferred method, but it was not the only method. Um, and so the court dismissed that claim as well. So I think the takeaway there for our listeners is that you need to be careful about what the language on your form actually says and what your practice actually is. You're making sure that they can voluntarily revoke those waivers uh, if they have them in place whenever, whenever they wish. Megan, thank you so much. This is such great information. And I think it's, it's so interesting 
how many of our clients are so tired of talking about meal periods, right, and rest breaks? But I think as this case makes clear, the rider decision, there are so many ways that we can muck this up that as employers, we've really got to take the time to have the policies and procedures in place. And then to check in through an audit, for example, is it going the way it's supposed to be going? Do our managers and supervisors know what they're supposed to be doing? And are we holding our employees accountable? Are they responsible for making sure that they don't check back in early, right? Because that's what happened in this case. He returned from his meal period early, but not because the company made him do that. Megan, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Of course, I loved being here. Thanks so much. Everyone, thanks for joining us. Have a wonderful day and we'll catch you next time. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to spread the word, please share it with others, post about it on social media and or rate and review it. Of course, you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, and email us at info at Workplace Wake Up, including its guests and hosts, do not provide legal advice in this podcast. Do not act upon any of the information discussed in this podcast without consulting a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction.